in the morning love And the sunlight hurts my eyes And something without warning love Bears heavy on my mind Then I look at you And the world's all right with me Just one Welcome to Just In Time Conversations on WNHHFM's 103.5. I'm your host, Justin Farmer, inviting you to be in community with us about ideas that matter with people making a difference. Today, our guest, Barbara Fair of Stop Solitaire CT, thank you fam for coming to the studio it's so good to see you thank you for inviting me it's really good to see you too hey i i always love to start our segments with hot takes right um and so for me you know some people are gonna come at me about this but the best jelly is pepper jelly i don't care what anybody says i don't care about your grandma's jam has nothing on pepper jelly (laughs) Okay. Well, I can't argue because I don't even know what it is. So, okay. You never had pepper jelly? No. So it's jelly with like scotch bonnet peppers in it. I don't know what that is either. So. Oh, all right. We're going to have to get you some good Jamaican food. Listen. Oh, okay. Hot and sweet, right? Hot and sweet. Yeah. I love Jamaican food. I just never heard of that. That's all. Okay. All right. Yeah. I love Jamaican food. Is there something that you know to be a truth that people are like, you know, Barb, I don't know if I agree with you, but you're like, no, 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 no. This is the thing. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. What's that thing? And, and, and one of it is the criminal justice system and how it intentionally does what it does. Facts. <laughs> and no one can tell me any different. <laughs> you said it's not rehabilitation? Nah, not at all. For safety? Nah. Mm. Nah. Security, nah. Turning people's lives around, nah. None of that. No, I, 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 um, you know, we all have family members who are touched by the system. And I think once you do have someone that you know, that you love and you care for, right, it becomes very hard to justify the level of cruelty when you weigh it to the supposed crime. Yes. And so, um, thank you for all that you do, right? I, mm-hmm. I I guess, how long have you been working around issues of prison conditions, right? Because I, I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about it. We, we say to ourselves, you did a crime, you do the time, and then we kind of just don't think about it anymore. Right? Until it touches them. Until it touches I've them. I found that to be very true. A lot of people, they don't give it a, a thought. But once it touches them, then I get the phone calls and the emails. You know, what can I do? What should I do? I don't know what to do. Um, and so I try to tell people that you can't wait until it knocks on your door. Mm. It's really too late then as far as I'm concerned because 
if you weren't there to fight all along, it's going to be hard to get other people to support you when it happens to you. Not that. So how long have you been in this fight, in this struggle? To be honest, since I was 17 years old. Wow. Uh, and it's because my brother went to jail. He was a year older than me. I had no idea anything about jails, prison, none of that, because it never touched our family before. Mm. Um, so um, when my brother went, I, you know, I went to court with him and everything, trying to understand the system, um, had no clue about it. Uh, he ended up in prison, and I was devastated. I didn't know what to do. And, of course, you know, my parents didn't know what to do, so um, I joined this group of people called Citizens for Humanizing Criminal Justice. Hey. Uh, back then, at 17 years old, I joined that group. It was a support group, and they helped me to understand the system and navigate the system, but not in the way that I understand it now. Because that group was a group of white women, um, and the black experience is so much more different. So um, my education started back then, but it has grown tremendously um, through the years um, in our community and watching um, so many like uh, people that I know, people in my community, um, going ending up in jail to the point that people act like it's just, a rites of passage, which is very sad. No, I, it definitely is sad that it's a badge of honor and, and, you know, I I think there's so much in us being tough, right? It being Black History Month, right? Mm -hmm. But there's so much in us being tough um, that gets synonymous with prison and yeah. violence and, mm -hmm. and and we just learn how to adapt like you know we're always talking about i'm i'm a survivor but how about being healed that's mm. the part that we miss out on we we survive so much but how much are we actually healed from and hurt people hurt people like when we talk about violence um in our community with our young people all you know people want to do is talk about how to get tougher on them we're not tough enough on kids. Um, we got to lock them up for a longer period of time. We got to uh, create more laws to, to lock them up for different things that we did as a kid and was just bad behavior, but we did it. Um, but now everything is criminalized, especially since we got resource officers, supposed to be resource officers inside our schools. Um, from that one thing that they did, um, and placing them in the schools turned our schools into uh, a prison um, pipeline from the schools right into the prisons. And the juvenile justice system just escalated out of control mm. once uh, SROs were introduced into the schools, which is why in, in um, urban communities, we, we want um, SROs out of our schools. Thanks. We want our teachers to be able to maintain their classrooms and principals be able to maintain their schools without having to bring in the police for everything, um, creating crimes to send our, start, start our kids out on that pathway um, to prison. No, and, I, yeah. People don't talk about it, but I'm like, hmm, we didn't really have police in the schools until the 50s. I'm like, what was happening in the 50s that all of a sudden we were like, we want police in our schools? Oh, integration. Oh, okay. All right. So that, that's where that come from. But I, 
I, I it always makes me laugh because once you become a student of history, it, it come, becomes a lot harder not to see the pattern. Yes, and um, it all goes back. If you know your history, it all goes back to um, this institution of slavery, mm. and and it's it's all created back there. That the, the use of shackles and chains inside of the prisons, directly from enslavement. Uh, strip searching uh, people, degrading them, mm. uh, dehumanizing them from the day they enter the system, all part of slavery. It's, it's so much of it that was created back then. Even when we put in the 13th Amendment to the Constitution that said we're now abolishing slavery, uh, people forget about the rest of that language that says unless someone is committed of a crime. So if you want the prisons to be full and uh, full of certain people, of course, um, you have to first make sure you have enough police officers in that um, community that police every little thing that anybody's doing, Make uh, have lawmakers make everything a crime, and then those people that you wanted to um, be um, enslaved, make sure that we pass laws that put them in prison for as long as you possibly can. And then now we still have our institution of slavery, and it's it's legal. No, I listen. I, as you can see, Barbara has been a a, a student of the game for let's say twenty plus years, but thirty plus <laughs> or more. <laughs> we won't we won't age me. <laughs> but, Although I'm proud of my age, really. But hey, yeah, it's it's been a long journey. So, you know, what has this type of organizing that you do right I, I can imagine that there's a lot of people who don't understand and who because when i have these conversations with friends and family members um there's always the what about is right well what about this evil person what about that what about that and i i refuse to believe the majority of people in prison are the worst of the worst absolutely you absolutely right they are not right so what has kept you in this fight um for so long right because that's something that i personally admire where you know i, I was saying earlier I'm like you know things can get to you in a way that you know you want to say forget it all you just want to throw in the towel so what has kept you grounded in this work I, I sometimes i tell myself it just has to be the rubble inside me <laughs> um because i ask myself many times why do i keep fighting this fight when i see that for every step that we make forward mm. um the system is making another step to pull us back so everything whenever i go to harford about an issue that impacts black people which is a lot I I always come up against, well, incremental. We have to change things incrementally. And then I think of 401 years of incremental changes. It, it does get tiring because you say like, wow, this is far as we've gotten in 401 years. And they're still talking about we have to make incremental change. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime. So, mm -hmm. yeah, there have been many times when I felt 
just discouraged and and ask myself why am i still in this fight my kids have asked me that a long time ago say mom why don't you let other people uh fight and and you just relax and live your life and i want to do that Mm -hmm. but i see there's so few of us on the ground that stays in this work i mean there's people who come into it you know when the cameras are out there and it's a big deal then you know you can see people but the long haul for all the work that has to be done behind the scenes when there's no cameras around it's hard to keep people engaged and so i just feel like not that i'm the only one that can do this work but i feel i'm one of the very few Mm -hmm. so if i leave that's one less person out there on the ground doing this work and i feel like i let down so many people if i do that Mm -hmm. and so that's what keeps me in it for those of y'all who are just joining us, you're listening to Just In Time Conversations on WNHHFM 103.5. I'm your host, Justin Farmer, with our guest, Barbara Fair, Stop Solitaire CT, talking about what has kept Barb in the fight. Um, you know, I, one of the, the new things that y'all have worked on, right, um, Part of that incremental change has been the odd, odds buzzman, right? right. I've, I've right. had uh, Google Dictionary.com, right, to make sure I'm saying it right, right? <laughs> I get stuck on it sometimes <laughs> myself, too. Odds buzz person. Yeah. So what is this person and, like, what is this person supposed to do and, and kind of how, how did this come about? Okay, it came about from just watching the system, uh, Department of Corrections, like how much they get away with. You look at the um, countless lawsuits for uh, injuries and death within DOC. You see all the criminal activity that actual correctional officers are involved in, like recent uh, drug dealing. Um, uh, they ha- When they had the pandemic, they had money that they were given to um, correctional officers to stay in hotels um, for a period of time so they don't have to bring the uh, you know get the virus and then bring it home and so they found that CEOs were were taking advantage of that they were uh, having their families in there they were saving rooms saving space um, for parties and things like that and so there's thousands and thousands of dollars that they um, stole from the from the state Thanks. Um, and and it's things like that, that that no one seems to, we hear about it and then it just goes away because I'm always waiting to see, well, how do we prosecute the the law enforcement that are breaking the law? But these stories get told and and that's the end of it. And so I, I looked at that and I looked at all the things that I've heard about that goes on, on inside the prison because I get letters all the time from people inside. And I hear all this, these things that are going on inside, and I say, you know, DOC has to have some oversight. Mm. And then when I investigated, I found we, we are one of the very few states in this nation that has independent oversight over Department of Corrections. Now, you know, almost every agency probably has some kind of outside oversight. Department of Corrections has none. And worse than that is... Uh, Department of Corrections in Connecticut has no medical oversight, which is legislation wow. we're fighting for now. And um, so I'll go back to how it, how it all got started. So we decided 
you know, we got to have some independent oversight because uh, going to the Department of um, Corrections to tell them about something that's going on or even going to legislators and tell them about something going on, nobody really does anything about it. So let's get an ombudsman back in, in, in place because we did have one many, many years ago, but they took it out of the budget. So we said we need to get that back. Uh, and, and, and it's a little selfish, too, because, you know, I, I get all these letters all the time, and it's a heavy burden to carry hearing what's, how these people are being abused and, and mistreated and not being able to do anything with it but carry it. And so I, that's one of the reasons I want a buzz person. I want them to be able to bring their, their letters, their issues to someone else besides overburdening me with it. And so this, what happens, we, um, we, at, we at got the legislation passed under what we call the PROTECT Act in uh, last year. And then part of the PROTECT Act was independent oversight. Now, t we were able to get that only because myself and the commissioner, um, we negotiated. Like, he talked about the things that the staff needed, and I talked about the things that incarcerated people needed. And so... Um, he really wanted to get something passed last year. So I said, okay, so the main thing I want is independent oversight. He did not want it. He was totally against it. He was against it from day one, especially civilian oversight. But I, uh, at the time, I told him, I said, you know, if I can't get, go back to the people and tell them we can get independent oversight, then I just feel like I, I'm not bringing the people anything. Right. So he agreed. So... We uh, started canvassing people, bringing them in, interviewing them, people that came to us saying they were interested in being on this committee, this advisory committee. And what's important about the advisory committee, these are the people who will get to choose who the Osborne's person is. So we had to make sure we got good people in there that had a history of caring about the well-being of incarcerated people. Because we didn't want an Osborne's person from Oshkosh that has no connection to uh, incarcerated people and to be the one that's going to be able to bring issues to the commissioner and and part of his role is not only just to bring things to the commissioner he or she gets to go inside and talk to the people um he or she also um gets to look at some of the policies and directives that doc has on file to look mm -hmm. at some of them see you know might have to change some of these policies you have and so and then they give a report um to the community what you know what they found out and so it was important to get the right person. So we got to the advisory board. We uh, took it to the legislators um, that we got to select. There's supposed to be nine members. Uh, some of them are formerly incarcerated people or family members that are formerly incarcerated. Because we want to make sure those are the real experts on the board, the right. people who have the lived experience. So we have some of those on the board. So we got our committee. We was excited that uh, most of the legislators um, selected the person that we brought to them. So we were all excited about this board and thinking, okay, now we can start looking for the first meeting so that they can talk about um, how they're going to uh, hire this out bus person. I was hoping by June we would have someone. By then, you know, the people were so excited. So what happened, they had a hearing in December, a public hearing. So uh, it was to formally um, nominate the people. So, um, I mean, not nominate them, point them. So I went to the hearing and I noticed these two names on there that I know we didn't bring to anybody. And I said, how did that happen? And I said, and how did this board get to 11 members when it's supposed to be nine? 
And so I start following the track back. I track back to when the law was for, when it passed, and it passed with nine people, the people that we had uh, selected for the most part. And then I, I found the trail where two legislators, um, Republicans, who I guess were trying to find a way to undermine the bill and mm-hmm. infiltrate the board, and I found the trail and I brought it to a reporter who investigated. Um, the thing about this is, um, I think how they thought they could get away with it because many of the people up there are attorneys. So I don't know, maybe they think if you're not an attorney, you're, you're, you can't find your way out of a paper bag, but they were wrong. So I'm not an Barbara attorney. Fear, common I, law. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not an attorney, but I, I followed the trail. And so we took it to a reporter and he investigated and he put the story out there. So now the story's out there. So now some of the people that I worked with around the nation uh, reached out and said, we heard this about, you know, and how can we support? And so um, there's now a national campaign to keep our board independent. Hey. Along with that, uh, Representative Tony Walker has put forth a bill that's going to um, change the dynamics or the demographics of the of the, um, the board. So hopefully the people that were never chosen by the, by the people will be removed from the board. And it will be truly independent. It can't be independent if you have one person that they put on the board is the um, president of the correctional union. <laughs> um, tell me his interest in the well-being of incarcerated people. And then there was another one who is a, a, currently a correctional officer, just got promoted to a um, counselor. So where's his well-being for incarcerated people? Um, through the investigation, through Connecticut Mirror, they also found that one of them had um, liked a Confederate page. Um, once that came out, he said, oh, I'm sorry, I, didn't, I don't remember liking it, and I unliked it. Like, okay, so that makes it okay. <laughs> so, I, I never know about this. I'm like, I've never tripped and slipped and been like, oh, I hit like to say, like, I like something crazy that, like, I don't know why people always have that excuse, but I'm yeah, like, yeah, I don't remember liking it. Okay, so I'm gonna unlike it. So I'm undoing this. So I'm okay for the board now. So it's so that's uh, that's something that's in the uh, works. At the same time, we're I'm working with a team of women from Harford who are uh, heading up um, oversight over medical, hey. and that is so important. Um, the commissioner wanted to keep it all under the Protect Act, which is our bill. But I said, no, the medical issue is huge in itself. Protect Act, we're trying to take care of all the abuses and stuff that go on, like isolating people, chaining people, shackling them up in in cells. We're trying to get away with that. We can't also take on medical. Um, Inspector General, which is a new position that just started last year, has um, we wanted them to report on deaths inside the Department of Corrections. So he just recently put out his first annual report. Okay. 73 people have died in one year. Oh, God. Last year of 2022. He listed the people. Um, many were suicides. They said all the suicides were hangings. There were people who died from complications from medical. Um, there was a number of, uh, they call natural deaths. And there were many, many over, uh, overdoses in different facilities, including halfway houses. So we have all these deaths was in one year. Imagine what was going on before we 
uh, had that in the information put into the bill that now the inspector general has to tell us about the DOC deaths. We would never know. Hundreds, probably thousands have died inside of DOC custody and we don't hear about it. The crazy thing about this, this is why I'm like, I always say, don't wait until it knocks on your door. So I'm already a part of this, um, stepping up to um, support the people that said, no, we need medical oversight also. Because this report that the Inspector General put out ended December of uh, 2022. Well, the following month, my cousin died. Oh, God. I'm sorry. Uh, it's still, I still, it's hard to really process that he's gone. But I remember thinking um, when I used to see all these other people dying and, and you know, because the they gave their names and everything. And I said, I, oh, my God, I can't imagine what these people must feel. You know, their people never even made it home. And then I'm thinking, I can't imagine how they feel. And now I'm, I'm going through that. Like, it, like I said, it's still hard to process. It's been a month now. It's still hard to process. My cousin's not coming back home. And you don't hear about that in the news. So, you know, people are just dying and nobody talks about it in DOC until now this year that we uh, actually demanded a report from the inspector general. So there's many, many reasons that we need oversight um, over Department of Corrections. It's just too much is going on that the public doesn't know about. And and that's why they're fighting the oversight, because they don't want people to know about what's actually going on. And so there's. Um, I'm also working a lot with the, um, the um, child advocate because mm -hmm. they actually go inside the prison and talk to our young people. And the stories that they tell me, I'm telling you, uh, I'm, I sit there and I, uh, after I listen to them, I tell them I have to go out now and get some fresh air because this is just hard to, to um, hear how what our young people are being isolated in a room 22 hours a day with absolutely nothing no tv no nothing 22 hours a day and breaking them yes and they're and some of them have said i'm going crazy in here and the, and the thing why we should be concerned is because those kids are all coming back to our community because you know the bulk of the system is our communities the hey. bulk of the system is our communities so all these kids who've been isolated and mistreated and abused are coming back to our community and hurt people hurt people. So we shouldn't be shocked when we hear that there's violence and, you know, all this stuff in our community because we're creating people that have been broken mm. in spirit and mind. Um, they, their, their, their emotional ability, the emotional spirit is probably gone because they've been isolated, sitting in a room 22 hours a day with absolutely nothing to do. Some of them, when they do come out uh, for rec, their rec is to go from one cage to a bigger cage. So this is what I hear from the child advocates. They, their rec is to go out to a bigger cage for one hour um, and with nothing to do, can't even, not even a place to sit. So I'm sure some of them don't even come out for that. And then we have the strip searching that our kids are going through. Mm. There's so much trauma um, attached to that. And so these are some of the many things that I'm trying to address in this system. And I ask myself many times, why is no one else doing this? 
this is why I'm overwhelmed and overburdened because there's not many people that's doing this work. And I'm saying maybe parents don't know what's happening to their kids because if they do, and when they talk about let's address gun violence, they wouldn't be talking about stricter gun laws or being tougher on our kids. They would be more compassionate and say, we got to stop them from abusing our kids because this is why they're coming back acting like this. They have broken them. And so that's another part that kind of bothers me is when, you know, the people that's looking for funding will say they have the, the, the um, you know, they have the program that's, that's going to help or, or the people uh, that care about social status. So they're not going to say anything about what's going on. They want to keep those relationships, especially within the legislature. Uh, they want to try to build good, strong relationships. They don't want to rock the boat. So they're not going to really push a lot of this stuff. And and so and then you have these organizations that are supposed to their whole mission is supposed to support the well-being of black people. And they're not even in this fight with me. So it's it's hard. And that's why I say I, I want to walk away. But if I walk away, I'm so afraid that there will be no hope for people. Because when when I do this work, all I hear from people is thank you. You've given us hope we never had. And so I feel like I can't walk away now because I've given them hope and I have to I have to give them something for it, mm. you know, give them something to hope for. So, you know, that's some of the reasons I'm still in this fight, despite all the things that they do to undermine uh, the work that we do. For those of y'all just joining us, you're listening to Just In Time Conversations on WNHHFM 103.5. I'm your host, Justin Farmer, our guest, Barbara Fair of Stop Solitaire CT. Um, You know, you said so much that uh, (laughs) that I, uh, you know, uh, one of the things I think about, right? Do inmates have unions? Do they have representatives to support? To, like, is there anything formal that we have prisoners who are currently in prison to be able to advocate for their rights and needs? Now, um, first of all, we don't use the word inmate because we feel that mm. just takes away the humanity. DOC does enough of that. Hey. So one of the things that, that you'll notice in our legislations going forward uh, wherever they had inmate, we asked that to be removed and put incarcerated person. Because mm. you got to remember, at all times, these are people that you're doing this to. Thanks. So, um, no, they don't have. What they have is a grievance process, an internal grievance process, which they said 99% of the time is always in favor of the correctional officer. So many of them don't even bother to put in complaints. They're going to lose. And when you put in complaints, uh, they'll put you in solitary uh if you lose so rather than go through all of that they just they just deal with it and just and that's all they have so this would be their way of having someone that they could go to and who could fight for them where that internal doc process just does not work for them no that that you know i i think you laid out why these DOC representatives are so, right, this commission, right, this oversight commission is so important. I guess, you know, in reading 
the paper, right, and, 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 and some of the coverage, you know, what's the general tenement of, of people who are doing this work and kind of, like, how are the people, the commissioners feeling who were supposed to be appointed, right, about these additions that they were kind of blindsided by? Well, if you said the commissioner or the commission, because the commissioner the supported the commission was blindsided, just like me. They had no idea that, that these people had been um, um, put on the board. And it was an underhanded thing, but, you know, I, I, I questioned the legitimacy of it. And they said, well, it was legitimate. What they did, they attached our, our board to some other bill that has nothing to do with uh, oversight or prisons. It was a police accountability bill. <laughs> they attached our, they just put our name up, up on that bill, advisory, and from that they got to pick two people to put on the board. It was all underhanded, and and they, they got away with it. And, and, and I said that was uh, obstructionist lawmaking at its best. Mm. I wrote a couple of op-eds about it, and it was from the op-eds that they read that then, then the reporter from Connecticut Mirror said, mm, I, I want to look into this. I want to investigate this. And he did a very thorough investigation. But now, like I said, so many things we find out that this system is doing that's corrupt, but yet nothing happens. And I guess one of the, the reasons why, I guess a big reason why, because we have a governor who doesn't care anything about incarcerated people. He made mm. that very clear for over four years. We couldn't even meet with him to talk about some of the things we'd like to see improve. Wow. So now he's back in again. So there's no, it's almost like there's no hope. The commissioner was just re reconfirmed again uh, earlier this month. And uh, so he, he, he's, his job is protected for the next four years. And so where's the, I mean, where, where do we get to change anything? Because we don't have people rejecting to it. You look at the legislature. 100 what is 164 towns or something that we have in connecticut and most of the prisoners come from bridgeport new haven harford and waterbury do you think those legislators care what's going on in urban centers it's clearly they don't not all of them mm. thank god we have some really really good people in that and live in the suburbs that really care and they really step up but just not enough and, and I tell people all the time, because Connecticut is such a segregated state mm. that there's so many all-white towns that never uh, interact with black people that they can believe all these stories. Like, you know, they always had these stories, oh, prison is so violent, that's why we have to keep them locked up in cages 22 hours a day. First of all, in cages. They don't, the commissioner doesn't even like me to say cages, but I said, but that's what they are. They are. I said... So if you have a problem with me saying it, then you must, it must, you must realize that it's wrong to do that. We were not made to be in cages, and this is what you have people in. So what would oversight for incarcerated people look like? If I made you, right, Barbara Fair, governor of the day, right, what, what, what does that look like? The very first thing I would do is I would, to change the way we train people when they come in. Mm. I was volunteering um, in, uh, um, at the women's prison before the pandemic. And the training that I received, and I talked to the commissioner about the training that I received, like don't get close, don't trust them, they're manipulative, 
they're they could be violent you know keep your distance i said that kind of training is going to make them behave the way they do and, and 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 that's where a lot of it starts. So as a, if I was governor, the first thing I would do with Department of Correction, first of all, I would get a commissioner that has the the strength to um, to go up against uh, his subordinates because that's a a big issue. The unions are very powerful. Mm. So even if the commissioner wants to do something, that union is so powerful. Take for example, in the Protect Act right now, everyone should get at least four and a half hours out of their cell four and a half hours minimum. They got more time coming up uh, in April, five hours. But the unions have found a way to undermine that by either using COVID, which I told the commission, you can only hide behind COVID for so long. Mm. And if it's not COVID, is we don't have enough staff. And so what I'm what hearing do? from people inside, that it's a co- coordinated effort to make sure that there's not enough staff so they can say, well, we got to keep everybody locked up because there's not enough staff. So the unions are so powerful. That sounds like a personal problem. <laughs> and the commissioner will go and use that and say to get more people hired. But if you look at the the staff, like the 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 um popu- the population, the prison population is going down, but your staff totals are going up. Why is that? What are the, all of these people offering if you got people locked up in cages 22 hours a day? And then they say, well, we need we need to keep um, people safe. I said that the best way to keep people safe is to treat them like human beings. Yeah. You can't lock somebody in a cage 22 hours a day every day. And then one day when we say you have to let them out, you're scared to death of them. Of course, you wouldn't treat a dog like that. Because if you tra- treated a dog like that, put him in a cage and kept him in there all day for days, weeks, months, and years, when you open that door, he's not going to come out wagging his tail. He's going to come out ready to bite you. So we create these monsters, mm. and then we say, well, this is why we have to do what we do to keep everyone safe. It's certainly not safe for our communities because after you abuse them, you send them home. After you've isolated these kids all these weeks and months and years, you're sending them back to our community. Yeah. And you've hurt them deeply. So, yeah, that's what that's what we're going to get back in our community. So where's the safety? Where's the public safety that you're always crying? This is why you do what you do, because mm. you're really hurting us. I, 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 I am surprised and speechless that, uh, you know, I. I remember when y'all did stop solitaire and you had the 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 makeshift yeah solitaire confinement mm-hmm. spaces and, and remember going in and sitting in and trying to contemplate what it was like to be in that right 10 yeah. 15 minutes 20 minutes 20 minutes is mm-hmm. like Maybe I could do more, but why? Mm-hmm. Why would I want to do mm-hmm. this? To my, I understand, right? And to think that there are people, days, right? Weeks, months, years. Some And Garner, that's the place where they have the seriously mentally ill. There's got to be about 400 people there, seriously mentally ill. But they're going to leave Garner one day. 
and those seriously mentally ill people that have been abused, shackled, and chained in their cells, they're coming back to our community. They're not going back to Greenwich. That's why Greenwich doesn't care. They're coming back to New Haven, Hartford, Bridgeport, and Waterbury. I was um, reading the story about the young kid that recently, uh, probably in the last six months, killed uh, his girlfriend's little baby. He had been in prison. And I think about what kind of experience was that? What did he go through that he came back in with this state of mind to be abusive? We don't look at that. We'll look at him and say, oh, we need to punish him even more because look what he did. But nobody ever asks the question, what happened to you? We don't ask our kids what happened to them. We just see what they do. And then those who are pro-police will say, we need more police. And then that's, that's their answer. That's their response. They just go with it. Unless it happens to their own child. I think something that you, you know, you're touching on is that that the fact that mistakes, people are going to make mistakes, mm -hmm. right? But we have the ability to give grace and, and that people don't disappear when we put them into prison, mm -hmm. right? Their, mm -hmm. their personhood doesn't stop uh, and, and that we'll have to be in community with them again. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so, you know, I, I think about the fact that you talked about laws being a justification to put people in and, mm -hmm. and to see cannabis, right, mm -hmm. be something that was so horrible. But now yeah. I look around and I'm like, huh, Greenwich businessmen making money. I'm like, mm -hmm. interesting. I'm like. They're cropping up everywhere. I seen a restaurant downtown turn into a smoke shop downtown on the green. Like. Everywhere this shit went up. But you know what? This is the way the laws work in America. Mm. It's like, I remember when I was a kid, our house being raided because mm. my parents played numbers. <laughs> that was a crime. Now everybody can play numbers every day, twice a day, seven days a week, and it's okay. We even got casinos and everything else open. But at the time, it was what black people were doing when they came here to substitute their income because, you know, they never want to give us any real money. That substituted their income. Let's make it a crime. Same thing with, with, with drugs. Let's make it a crime because this is what we're finding that they're doing. And, and with the war on drugs, that was the feeder for the whole prison system. But you have to recognize it was selective enforcement. They put all the police in our communities. So you would think there was no drugs in the suburbs. But now that they're overdosing and it's in the news, they can no longer pretend there's no drugs in, in the community. Well, why aren't those people going to jail, too? Why are the prisons full of black and brown people when it comes to those issues? Because that's the way the system was built. Like people will say, oh, the system is broken. We got to fix it. That's reform talk. I don't speak reform talk anymore because I've learned reform just means let's make an incremental little switch somewhere and say we did something this is about dismantling the system that was created that was this whole intentional purpose created to prolong slavery because now which you have when you say they have to commit a crime you can enslave them now we have 
masses of people across this nation. But let's just talk about Connecticut. Go on Connecticut Correctional Enterprises. Please go on that website and see mm. all the things that incarcerated people are producing. And they are working for less than a dollar a day. Not an hour, a day. And you got this cheap workforce, which is what slavery was, a cheap workforce. Now you have this cheap workforce and you try to put them in there for as long as you possibly can. So much of their lives are spent in prison producing for local, state, and national. They provide the colleges, for dorms and all that stuff, daycares, um, state legislatures, um, all the city. All, all, they provide all of these things. You go on that website, you be, it's not about uh, making paper, um, license plates. They are producing beautiful, beautiful furniture, but they're getting a dollar a day for it. And if they get sick, they're going to have to pay $3 to go see the doctors. And you're lucky that you get to see the doctors after you pay that $3. You, you're lucky if you see that doctor within a month. So there is like so much going on inside the DOC, and I, I, that's why I clearly understand the last thing they want is some independent oversight looking inside it at what they're doing to people. I, as we're nearing the end of our time, I, how, how can people, if you can say that website again for people to check out uh, the Connecticut Enterprise, what was that again? The Connecticut Correctional Enterprises. Okay. You go on that website and you'd be astonished at what our people, and it's mostly our people, what they're producing for these, these state agencies, which is why it's hard to get anybody to stand with us because they're benefiting from all this cheap labor. Mm. Churches, their colleges, they're all benefiting from, from this cheap labor. So it's hard to get them to stand with us. But you go on that website. If you want to find out what we're doing, Stop Solitary, go under stopsolitaryct.org. Mm. You can see all the things that we're doing. You can find a way to get involved if you want to. Um, so there's no excuse that if I have a rally, there's only 15 or 20 people show up when we have thousands behind bars. This just it makes no sense. Yeah. Unless people just expect that we're going to take care of everything, so they'll just be sideline spectators. And that can't happen. And, and it, my favorite thing to always ask people is, is, you know, a song that speaks to them, that speaks to the movement, that speaks to the work that they're doing. I, I, anytime I have a guest, I love to come on to, to, to hear, you know, really reflect on what they said, listen to the song they shared and, and, and remember so what, what's a song that we can think of that we can connect to? Uh, well, one of them that I really, really love is um, it's a gospel. It's Why Not Me. I can't remember who sings it, but I play that a lot when, you know, because it talks about why is this stuff happening to us? And then uh, it just tells you why not. We were built for this. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you uh, for connecting with us today on Just In Time Conversations, mm -hmm. WNHHFM 103.5. Thank you, Barbara Fair. Thank you. Um, this is Justin Farmer, and until next time, let us continue to plant the seeds of change so that we can grow together. Yes. Uh, yo, 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 yo.